the writer of Psalm 43, cries out to God, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Father, we pray that you would indeed send forth your light and your truth among us this morning. Please would they bring us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, there's a painting by Caravaggio with the title, The Sacrifice of Isaac. It's based on the Bible chapter I've just read. In the painting, Abraham's old brown hand is shown tightly gripping Isaac's neck and face. Abraham has thrust Isaac's head against a rock so that Isaac's left cheek is flat against the slab. Isaac's right eye, filled with horror, is staring out at whoever is viewing the painting. Isaac's mouth is open in what seems to be the kind of scream that never actually makes the noise it's meant to make. Abraham's other hand, the one that is not pinning Isaac down, holds a knife. The sharp edge of the blade catches the light. It's inches away from Isaac's neck. Abraham and Isaac aren't the only figures in the painting. There's also a very human-looking angel who has grabbed Abraham's forearm to stop him. The presence of the angel brings a certain amount of relief and reassurance, and yet the line of the angel's arm as he reaches for Abraham's wrist it has the effect of leading the viewer's gaze back to that knife with its gleaming edge. And the same diagonal line leads on towards Isaac's frightened eye in the bottom right-hand corner of the picture. The effect of the painting is to make anyone looking at it ask the simple question, Why? Why is this happening? When we turn from Caravaggio's painting to the Bible passage it's based on, we find the answer to that question right at the start of the passage in the very first verse. Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. It's a test. And Abraham, not Isaac, is the one being tested. After these things, God tested Abraham. That immediately establishes a connection between this unforgettable event and our own lives today. In our period of salvation history, God is still testing his people. We're not tested in exactly the same way that Abraham was tested, but we too are tested. Listen to these words from James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The testing of your faith. God hasn't stopped testing his people, which makes 
Genesis 22, highly relevant to us. We need to learn from Abraham's experience. We're going to look first at the nature of the test Abraham had to go through, then at its purpose. And finally, we'll look at the outcome of the test. Let's start then with the nature of the test. The nature of the test. Please look down with me to verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A burnt offering. If we're going to experience this test alongside Abraham, we need to know exactly what God was requiring Abraham to do. At this point in time, of course, Abraham doesn't know about that future intervention by the angel. He thinks he will have to follow all of those instructions in verse 2. So what would it mean to offer Isaac as a burnt offering? In the original language, burnt offering is just one word, which literally means the ascension, the going up. That's what happens when an offering is burnt. It all goes up to the Lord in smoke. The book of Leviticus has a section dealing with the burnt offering, the ascension offering. And it says, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. For sinful human beings, burnt offerings brought about God's acceptance. Now, when the sacrificial system was formalized in the time of Moses, the Israelites were allowed to sacrifice a bull, sheep, goat, dove, or pigeon as a burnt offering, they were not allowed to sacrifice their own children. That was explicitly prohibited. But Abraham's period of salvation history predates the giving of the law. God's people were not in the habit of sacrificing their children in those days. There's no evidence of that. But it's true to say that before the giving of the law, child sacrifice had not yet been banned. So when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering, he's not telling him to do something unlawful. Verse 3 reveals Abraham's response. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham carefully follows God's instructions. He takes everything needed for the sacrifice and they travel toward the region God has specified. Those outward actions give no indication of the inner turmoil that Abraham was experiencing. But there are seven words in Genesis 22 that do give us a window into Abraham's inner life. Those words in verse 2, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, has been sent away and disinherited. 
for the reasons we went into last week. That left Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Think about all the love Abraham has poured out on this boy. He's bought him presents from Hittite and Canaanite traders. They've played the ancient equivalent of soccer in and out of the tents until Sarah asked them to go somewhere else because they're frightening the camels. Think of all the evenings when Abraham and Isaac have sat together by the fire as Abraham told stories of his past life in Ur of the Chaldeans in the east and the story of his thousand-mile journey to get from Ur to Canaan. But now there's a death warrant out on the son he loves. And he is the hitman, the God-appointed hitman. According to verse 4, Abraham sees the place God has spoken of on the third day. Abraham then tells his two servants to stay where they've got to, while he and Isaac travel the last stage of the journey by themselves. We know from verse 2 that the location God has chosen for the sacrifice is on a mountain, so that last stage of the journey must have been a strenuous upward hike. Usually the only motivation for hiking up a mountain is the expectation that once you reach the top, it will all seem worthwhile. At the top, you get the views, and you have that pleasing sense of achievement. You've made it. We look forward to the rewards of reaching the summit, but Abraham can hardly be looking forward to reaching the top of this mountain. He knows that when the hike is over, when they can't climb any further, any higher, he will have to sacrifice his son. As with any burnt offering, that will mean binding his body with rope, placing him on some chopped wood, and then cutting his throat with a knife, the knife he's carrying as he clambers up the mountain. Afterwards, he will have to set the wood and the boy on fire. No one in all the world would look forward to doing those things to their beloved only son. Most people climbing up a mountain long to reach the top. Abraham must have dreaded it. But when they arrive there, he does what God has told him to do. Let's look down, please, to verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. We've been thinking about the nature of the test, what exactly God was telling Abraham to do. Before we move on to the purpose of the test, we need to see that Abraham's fatherly love for his child isn't the only thing making this test unimaginably difficult. Ever since Genesis 11, the Abraham narrative has kept highlighting Abraham's need for a son. Without a son, the three great promises God had made to Abraham could not be fulfilled. God had promised Abraham people. 
He told Abraham he'd be the father of a nation. How can that happen if Isaac is killed? God had also promised blessing. That nation descending from Abraham would bring blessing to all the world. How can that happen if Isaac is killed? And God had also promised land. He told Abraham that the nation descending from him would inherit the whole land of Canaan. How can that happen if Isaac is killed? People blessing land. Those promises all depended on the arrival of a son. When Isaac was finally born, despite Abraham's old age, despite Sarah's previous inability to have a child, all those three promises gained traction. But the death of Isaac would surely cut short that progress like a spike strip laid across a road puncturing a car's tires. Do you see how God wasn't just ordering Abraham to kill his beloved son? He was also ordering him to do something that seemed destructive to everything Abraham and God had jointly been seeking to achieve. That is the deeper layer of the test. Well, God always has a good reason for doing what he does. The Bible says of God, you are good and what you do is good. So there must be a good reason behind this unfathomably hard test. Let's consider that reason now as we turn to the purpose of the test. The purpose of the test. Please look down to verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God. In other words, the test is now over. Because Abraham has proved that he does fear God. So that was the purpose of this test. God wanted to know whether or not Abraham truly feared him. Fearing God is something I think modern Christians don't often talk about, so it's worth saying right away that it's there in the New Testament as a way of describing the Christian life. Fearing God. But what does it mean to fear God? In the Bible, fearing God means doing what he says instead of rebelling against him. Listen to Proverbs 24, verse 21. It says, Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious. In that verse, fearing God means not rebelling against him. Just as fearing the king, fearing the government, means not rebelling against the government. That's a negative way of explaining what it means to fear God. Don't rebel against him. We can see a positive explanation of fearing God at the end of verse 18 in today's passage. By this time, Abraham has passed the test. And in verse 18, God sums up what Abraham has done with these words. Because you have obeyed my voice, we fear God when instead of rebelling against him, we listen to him and do as he says. 
A British friend of mine went to a boarding school for his high school. And on one occasion during his time at that boarding school, a major food fight broke out in the school cafeteria. There were teachers present in the room, but they couldn't hold the food fighters back. There was short distance, carefully aimed food throwing. There was long distance, arc through the air. Who knows where it will land? Food throwing. And then Mr. Simmons walked in. And the food throwing instantly stopped. Unlike those other teachers who had been present all along, Mr. Simmons was a teacher who the students feared in the biblical sense. And so the rebellion ceased, and the students did what he said. They feared him in the biblical sense. We've seen that the purpose of the test is for God to find out whether Abraham fears him. And we've seen that fearing God means obeying him instead of rebelling against him. But one basic truth about God is that he knows everything. And since he knows everything, we can't help Tripping up over those words in verse 12, now I know that you fear God. We ask ourselves, since God knows everything, couldn't he have spared Abraham this test? Because surely he already knows the attitude of Abraham's heart. There are two parts to the answer to that question. The first part is that already in the book of Genesis, God has shown a desire to come down and investigate for himself. When humanity builds the Tower of Babel, we're told the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. It's similar with Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells Abraham in Genesis 18, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. With the Tower of Babel and with Sodom and Gomorrah, that same question could be asked. God already knows. He knows everything. Why does he need to come down and see for himself? Well, both those occasions end with a severe judgment against the people involved. And so by coming down to see for himself before delivering that judgment, God demonstrates the principle that careful investigation should be done before people are condemned. In Deuteronomy 19, God says the judges must investigate thoroughly. That's what God wants human judges to do, and it's something he does himself. So that's the first part of the answer to our question. Sometimes when it's a particularly important matter, God does what he wants humans to do. He comes down to investigate thoroughly, to take a closer look. Demonstrates the principle of thorough investigation. The second part of the answer is that fearing God is such a practical thing that there's a sense in which it can't be known until life itself reveals whether a person fears God or rejects him. So fearing God is something that's done in practice, not in theory. It's like Olympic swimming. That is something that has to be done in practice at the Olympic Games. You can't be an Olympic swimmer until you've actually done that swimming at a genuine Olympics. To tie all those threads together, God is paying close attention to Abraham's case. Does he truly fear the Lord? 
And in order to discover that, God has to put Abraham through a real-life test. Well, it's time for us to move on to the third part of the sermon, the outcome of the test. The outcome of the test. Verse 12 brings the test to a close. Now I know that you fear God. But verse 12 doesn't bring this event to a close. The story doesn't end there. Let's look down, please, to verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The story doesn't end at verse 12 because a sacrifice is still needed. Abraham has passed the test. He's demonstrated true fear of the Lord through his obedience, but he remains a sinner in need of a substitute. As it says in Leviticus, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Imagine Abraham's joy when just after the angel has stopped him from killing Isaac, he hears a a bleating behind him and he turns and and sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket there on the mountaintop. Abraham understands that this ram has been provided by God. He names the mountain. The Lord will provide. Abraham has been given the sacrificial blood he needs to be accepted by God. But notice the future focus there in verse 14. The Lord will provide, Abraham says. And then the writer of Genesis adds, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We might have expected Abraham to say, the Lord has provided. We might have expected that saying to be, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. But there's a future focus. The blood of that sacrificed ram wasn't enough. When the temple was built, almost certainly on that same mountain, because 2 Chronicles says it was built on Mount Moriah, and Moriah is there in verse 2 of our passage. When the temple was built on that mountain, all the animals sacrificed on its altar couldn't provide enough blood. Only the blood of Jesus, God's Son, shed on the cross, on that same mountain, was precious enough to provide the forgiveness and acceptance we need. The blood of the animals sacrificed beforehand, like that ram, was only ever a kind of placeholder, like a reserved sign on a table. When waiters put a reserved sign on a restaurant table, that sign doesn't accomplish in itself what the waiters are hoping for. They're hoping for a group of generous customers. But the placeholder, that reserved sign, is an act of faith that the customers are coming. The animal sacrifices were like that. They were placeholders looking forward with faith to the blood that would truly accomplish what Old Testament believers were hoping for. 
acceptance with God, forgiveness from him, an eternal relationship with him. The blood that accomplishes that is the blood of Jesus. Jesus served as the true substitute, dying in the place of everyone who trusts in him, bearing our sin, taking the punishment for it, so that we can be eternally accepted. Verses 13 and 14 teach us that Abraham's extraordinary obedience did not earn him eternal life. He was still a sinner in need of a substitute. The whole Bible teaches that salvation is not earned by our good deeds, by our proving ourselves. No, it's given by God to those who trust in the sacrificial blood he provides. So if you're listening as a non-Christian today, someone not yet following Jesus, thank you for listening. We want you to hear that God is offering you forgiveness and acceptance, eternal acceptance, if you put your trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. And that's something you could do today, even now, during this worship service. We long for you to do that, to come to Jesus with faith. But without undermining what I've just said about salvation being a gift received through faith, the message of this Bible passage is that faith cannot be disconnected from the fear of God. True faith in God always leads to the fear of God, meaning obedience instead of rebellion. Not perfect obedience all of the time. There isn't a single follower of Jesus who could truthfully claim that for themselves. But that arrowhead of a believer's life thrusts forward in the direction of obedience. In the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 20 says, Faith without works is useless. And James then turns to Abraham to prove his point. He says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? James's point is that Abraham showed that his faith was real, the real thing. Real saving faith. When he demonstrated fear of God by passing the test on that mountain. As many preachers have said, we are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Saving faith overflows into a life of obedience. And so we too will need to pass the test. Sometimes we might face a major one-off test, rather like Abraham, although it will not be the same test. Perhaps we'll have to walk away from a job that suited us very well, because doing that job would, in some way, for some reason, lead us into disobedience to God. It's a major one-off test. Will we walk away? Perhaps we'll need to walk away from a romantic relationship because in some way it would lead us into disobedience to God. 
that can be a very hard test. Perhaps a major one-off test for you will be whether you're willing to forgive someone. Someone who has sinned badly against you. When they come to you repentant and seeking reconciliation, will you forgive them? That's something God commands Christians to do. It can be a hard test. But for many of us, passing the test will mean small acts, lots of small repeated acts of obedience. We're called to serve God faithfully in our life situations, loving people, praying for people, bearing their burdens. Sometimes doing those things over and over again, week after week, year after year, can be testing. That list of names at the end of the Bible passage shows that the tests weren't over for Abraham. Remember, he just has this one son, Isaac, everything depending on him, and he hears his brother Nahor has baby boys coming out of his ears. All those sons from verse 21 onwards. Abraham has to keep trusting in the fragility of his situation, this one son on whom all the promises depend. He has to keep moving forward, even as he hears of his brother having all those sons. The tests continue. I think of a friend of mine named Adrian, who died last week, a believer, just a few years older than me. During those final weeks, as he grappled with his terminal diagnosis, with the pain of it, with the disappointments of dying young and not doing the things he might have hoped to do in this world, in this life. He faced the test. Would he keep trusting in Jesus to the end, glorifying him? Praise God he did. That was a test for him. As we face these tests, we can draw on the power of God, the power of his Holy Spirit, to strengthen us and keep the arrow thrust of our life heading forward in the direction of obedience. Well, for the last two minutes or so of the sermon, we need to give attention to those verses 15 16, 17, and 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. What is God doing in those verses? He's underlining the promises, those surelies. 
I will surely bless you, verse 17. I will surely multiply your offspring. It's rather like when you see someone very trustworthy who never lies going into court and putting their hand on a Bible and swearing the oath that they will not give false testimony. They are underlining what you know is already the case. They have been telling the truth. They will tell the truth. Their promises can be trusted. But think of what it meant for God to give those promises and underline them, guarantee them. Think of what it cost God. Abraham did not have to go through with the sacrifice of his only son, his beloved son. But God did have to go through with the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus. Remember that haunting conversation between Abraham and Isaac. Verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. At some point in eternity, a conversation like that took place between God the Father and God the Son. When in the love of God, it was decreed that sinful human beings would be saved forever and brought into the love relationship of the Trinity, it became clear that it would be God the Son who would need to come down into this world and be sacrificed. We see in this passage, Isaac is a shadow Jesus. A shadow Jesus. He is the promised child. Jesus is the promised child. He is Abraham's beloved only son. Jesus is the beloved only son of God the Father. Isaac is brought to the point of sacrifice. Jesus is also brought to the point of sacrifice. And he is sacrificed and then ascends to God as a burnt offering in the true literal sense of an ascension offering who goes up to God. There's even a sense in which Isaac's return with Abraham to those young men, verse 5, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you, plural, come again, we will come again to you. Hebrews says, Abraham believed Isaac would be raised from the dead. That's what got him through it. That was his reasoning. He thought the promises will be fulfilled because God can be trusted. He will raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews tells us that in chapter 11. When does that happen? That Resurrection, Hebrews says, it was a kind of resurrection. He didn't have to die. It was a kind of resurrection. He was spared. When did they return? Well, all of this happened on the third day. There in verse 4. On the third day. 
God went through with some sacrifice for us, for our sake, because of his love for us. And probably the one thing more than anything else that will get you through the test is the knowledge of God's love for you, seen in the sacrifice of his son on the cross. Yesterday I was listening to a sermon on Genesis 22. Check I was understanding the passage rightly. I was listening to a sermon on it as I took Solly for a walk. He was in his stroller. I had my AirPods in. And early in the sermon, when the preacher was talking about Abraham being told to kill Isaac, Solly turned around in his seat, looked up at me, smiled at me, and raised his hand for a high five. It was the worst possible moment he could have chosen to do that. My stomach heaved within me at the thought of what God had told Abraham to do. But Abraham did not have to go through with it, and yet God did, for our sake, in his love. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, we do glimpse in this passage something of what it cost you to send your beloved son Jesus to his death on the cross. And we thank you and praise you for your willingness to do us, to do that for us. We know we are sinful people. We do not deserve your love, your kindness, your forgiveness. And yet you chose to sacrifice your son Jesus for our sake. We thank you and praise you. We pray, Father, that our consciousness of your love would be deeply embedded within us so that when we do face the test or lots of little tests, we would pass them by the power of your Spirit conscious of your love for us, trusting you as our loving Father. In Jesus' name, amen.